1: Hang on, Seth. Let me just dry my hands.
2: What you can't see can make you sick. I'm Seth Shostak, fighting the urge to wash my hands.
1: And I'm Molly Bentley, and this is Big Picture Science. What's bugging you? Well, millions of things, all very small. We'll hear about disease detectives and spores from space later on. But first, let's do the numbers. Millions of bacteria and viruses are on us in any one given time. Most don't cause a problem, or they're actually helpful, but some can give you...
2: Fever, joint pain, chills, sweating, fatigue, headache, dry cough, and nausea, just for example.
1: And that example, or those symptoms, are all from one parasite.
2: One that Bill Gates has targeted for eradication. He's thrown part of his fortune toward fighting malaria, including $160 million to develop a vaccine. Isn't it amazing, Molly, that we're still battling this disease today? I mean, this is the 21st century. This is a very old disease. And I don't know why it hasn't gone the way of other scourges of the Middle Ages, like smallpox that we've managed to conquer in the century since.
1: Well, when you say a disease is an old disease, Seth, what do you mean? Well,
2: I mean that we have records or other evidence going back at least hundreds of years. I mean, this isn't a new disease like AIDS that has hit humans recently, but we have records that indicate that malaria goes way, way back, and yet here it still is. Journalist Sonia Shah has written a history of this deadly disease, and it's a long one. You mean the history of the
1: disease, not her book.
2: Right. Malaria is one of the oldest maladies we know. It has killed more people than any other on Earth, trumping the plagues of the 13th and 14th century, smallpox, and so forth. But Sonia Shaw says it goes back further than that.
3: It's probable that malaria has been infecting us since we evolved. So since we became Homo sapiens, we probably emerged with malaria alongside us. All of our ancestry all have their own malaria parasites. And we know from sort of molecular clock techniques that we've been adapting to malaria for many, many millennium.
2: There's some evidence that even King Tut, who died around 1300 B.C., right, and more than 3,000 years ago, uh, died of malaria. I assume that's not based on any medical records. How how would we know that, in-
3: that? That was done by analyzing remains so they can find sort of fragments of malaria parasite DNA in the remains of these ancient monies.
1: Well,
2: we have King Tut's body. How did they determine from the DNA that he had malaria?
3: My understanding is they found fragments of malaria parasite DNA in samples of his remains. And that's how they've identified that other sort of historical figures, you know, when they do these archaeological digs and they find corpses and things and they can do molecular analysis of the remains and actually find fragments of Plasmodium falciparum DNA, which is the parasite that causes the most virulent kind of malaria.
2: So, in fact, they simply found the disease itself. They, they found the remains of the disease in his body. Correct. All right. Now, what, what sort of treatment could he have expected to have received? I mean, you know, 3,000 years ago, he could afford the best that uh, medicine had to offer. <laughs> what might that have been?
3: Well, we only had effective treatments for malaria, I say only because you've brought up King Tut, who's awfully old, but we've had effective medications for malaria since around the 1600s. So we've had them around for a long time, herbal remedies, that are now proven effective against malaria. Back thousands and thousands of years ago, I mean, people used all kinds of other herbal remedies that have pretty much vanished in history that we don't know about. Um, We know a lot about the ancient Romans and the different malaria treatments they had, things like bed bugs soaked in wine, Um, things like that. So there's definitely lots of different treatments available, but whether they were effective or not, um, you know, that's pretty much been lost to history at this point.
2: You mentioned the Romans. Of course, they write a lot of things down or did write a lot of things down. Do they actually describe the disease? I, I believe that someone said that Julius Caesar may have suffered from malaria.
3: Yes, Caesar probably did suffer from malaria. Malaria was common throughout the Roman Empire from the very beginning. Then Roman physicians um, ancient Roman physicians described the disease in enough detail that we can recognize it today.
2: You write in your book that malaria is far older than the Roman Empire, that it dates back 500,000 years, which is, of course, a longer period of time than we've had Homo sapiens. What,
3: what's the evidence for that? Well, there's molecular clock evidence that you can look at how the DNA of the parasite has been changing over time, and you can look at our own DNA and look at how we've been changing over time and the adaptations between the two. So we know from that. We also know from lineages of the parasite and matching that up with lineages of our own species and our ancestors. So there's probably ancestors of malaria infecting our ancestors, and so we kind of have evolved together.
2: Okay, so we, we find malaria in other species than humans. It isn't uh, just targeted to us.
3: Absolutely. There's at least five different malaria parasite species that infect humans, four of which we know specialize in humans, and they're still actually figuring out what the specificity of different human malaria parasites is. They might actually... Infect other species as well, but we know that also there's malaria of birds, there's malaria of lizards, there's malaria of chimpanzees, of apes, of a huge number of other creatures suffer their own malaria.
2: The incredible history of malaria, this this thing extending back a half million years. We began to investigate it, I suppose, beginning with the the Renaissance. The the name malaria. Right comes from mal air that just means bad air. For a long time, I I think they had the wrong idea about how you got this disease.
3: Well, malaria was originally not really the name for the disease. It was more the name for the cause of the disease. So it was thought that the bad air that rose from swamps and wetlands would make you sick. And in a way, they were right. I mean, that was the correct insight into how the disease is transmitted because of course those were the areas where mosquitoes would be breeding most prolifically and exposure to those airs would expose people to mosquito bites
2: but they thought it was the air they didn't suspect the, the mosquitoes did they
3: no they didn't they actually it, i mean the 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 western medical philosophy that reigned for many hundreds of years was called miasmatism and the philosophy behind that was that there was uh, miasmata like little bits of debris in the miasmas, and the miasmas being these smelly vapors that rise from wetlands and other unhealthy areas. Um, and the miasmata in the bad air is what would actually make you sick. And so you, to avoid illness, you would have to avoid those areas.
2: It sounds like death in Venice, people dying from the bad air. But uh, beginning in the 19th century, of course, we, we see the rise of modern medicine, and they began to investigate malaria. And we've, you know, we've had more than 100 years of looking at this disease, are, are there still things we don't understand about it?
3: There are. There are surprisingly large numbers of things that we, whole areas of how malaria works that we don't understand. For example, the way malaria kills most frequently is by leading to these complications, in, mostly in children where they fall into comas and often have convulsions and then die. It's um, still not known exactly how the parasite can cause this chain of events. For example, when I was doing my research in my reporting in Africa, there was a child who had recently died of malaria. And the ironic thing is the medications that they were giving this patient were working. So the number of parasites were actually going down in that child's body. And even though that was happening, he went into all these complications. He had the coma, he had the convulsions, and then he died. And it's not known to this day exactly how the malaria parasite is able to cause that pathology.
2: So so there are people who die of malaria for reasons we simply don't understand.
3: Right. We don't know the exact mechanism of why malaria parasites have killed them because in some of those kids, they'll be infected with malaria parasites to the same level, but they'll be perfectly fine. They'll be playing soccer outside. So there's theories of whether it's different strains of malaria parasites that are more virulent than other strains, Is it a function of the child's immune system interacting with these parasites? Um, We know that many times people are infected with multiple strains of malaria parasites, so not just one. I mean, there's a genetic diversity amidst the parasites that are infecting any one person, so maybe it has something to do with that as well. So there's lots of theories as to how malaria actually kills people, but we don't really know yet.
2: I'm speaking with Sonia Shah, the author of The Fever, How Malaria Has Ruled Humankind for 500,000 Years. The mosquitoes' role in malaria, that it wasn't due to bad air, it was due to these, these mosquitoes. I mean, that's fairly recent news. I think they worked that out in the 1880s, if I recall. But the question is, what's in it for the mosquito? I mean, are they simply... Innocent carriers, they, they don't suffer from malaria. They're just doing this kind of inadvertently, the way birds scatter seeds of plants or something? Or, or is there some survival advantage to the mosquitoes to be involved with malaria?
3: That is still an area of active investigation. We know that most mosquito species will instinctively and successfully fight off malaria parasites. So they, if they get infected, their innate immune system will kick in and they will get rid of the parasite. So there's only one genus of mosquitoes that actually can carry malaria at all, and those are called Anopheles mosquitoes. And of the hundreds of Anopheles mosquito species that we have, only probably about a dozen carry most of the world's malaria. There's about 70 different species that probably can transmit malaria, but only about a dozen actually do transmit most of the world's malaria, and that's probably because they have a tepid immune response to the parasite for some reason but the most infected mosquitoes are actually the old mosquitoes because it takes 10 to 12 days for the malaria parasite to develop inside the mosquito so this is well past when it has reproduced etc so it's you know if you're infecting an old mosquito you're not necessarily interfering with the survival of the fittest and how much the mosquito can reproduce
2: we fought malaria with drugs quinine, of course, 100 years ago was the drug of choice. Today we have artemisinin. What's worked and uh, what are our best options today?
3: There's lots of effective drug treatments for malaria. So quinine is actually still used in severe cases of malaria in Africa today. And that's the drug that we discovered in the 1600s and we're still using it to this day. The sort of first-line drug that the WHO recommends today for malaria is based on artemisinin, which is an extract from the sweet wormwood tree. It's actually based on an, an ancient Chinese remedy that was resurrected during the Vietnam War. But there's a number of other drugs that also can be used against malaria that, you know, varying effectiveness, but many of them are quite effective. Artemisinin is effective even against strains of malaria that are resistant to older drugs.
2: But I have to say, as somebody who was just pulled off the street might wonder here in the United States, a kind of can-do society where technology can triumph all, if we have drugs that are effective in dealing with malaria, why is this disease still so prevalent?
3: The main issue is that in the places where there's the most malaria, most people do not seek treatment. They just have their malaria at home. And then there's many, many, many others who carry malaria but are not sick. They're silent carriers. So the trick is, yes, if you could get everyone to get treated promptly for malaria as soon as they're infected, you could get rid of this disease. Well, you could take a big chunk out of it anyway. and you might even be able to get rid of it in some places. But um, with many people just being silent carriers and not being sick, and many, many others just having their sickness at home the way you and I would just maybe have a cold or flu at home without seeking treatment, that's the big problem. So it's a cultural problem. It's because of the way people have adapted to living with this parasite so that they don't you know, run out to the doctor as soon as they get a spike of fever with malaria.
2: Well, finally, Sonia, some researchers are planning to attack this disease once they have sequenced its genome. And uh, that's, you know, that's the holy grail these days. We'll just sequence the genome of something, and then we'll be able to, you know, re-engineer the situation. Is that really going to yield a treatment?
3: That's already been happening. So they have the full genome of at least one malaria parasite species, Plasmonium falciparum, and they also have the whole genome of Anopheles gambi, which is the mosquito species that carries the worst malaria in much of sub-Saharan Africa. And this is been a huge sort of windfall for drug developers. Um, and there's a lot more work looking for targets for new drugs to fight malaria and also for vaccines. So this genomic research is really taking off. But I think we're still a ways off of actually seeing products come out of that.
2: Sonia Shaw, thanks so much for talking to us.
3: Thank you.
1: Sonia Shaw is the author of The Fever, How Malaria Has Ruled Humankind for 500,000 Years. In fact, malaria's rule nearly called a halt to one of the greatest feats of engineering the world has seen. Actually, it did halt it temporarily. Along with yellow fever, malaria extracted a high price to build the Panama Canal in human lives. That and global disease detectives coming up on Big Picture Science. In 1939, documentary film celebrated the 25th anniversary of the completion of one of the most ambitious engineering projects in history.
4: The canal channel follows the old course of the Chagres River, up which from the sea came in turn the Spanish explorer, colonist, soldier, priest, and trader, the English buccaneers, and the American gold seeker bound for California.
2: The Panama Canal is now nearing the 100th anniversary of its completion. The canal became an obsession after people came to believe they could actually build a waterway across the Isthmus of Panama.
1: By doing so, they could save ships traveling from, say, New York to San Francisco more than 5,000 miles and through the treacherous Magellan Straits at the bottom of South America.
2: So there were obvious commercial interests, but there was more. Consider the situation in the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. It was becoming a power in the world, and it felt the necessity to have a two-ocean navy, because if trouble breaks out in the Pacific and most of your fleet is in the Atlantic, you don't want to spend weeks and weeks sending your ships around Cape Horn.
1: But Seth, that shows what the Americans got out of the deal. But what about the Panamanians? What did they get?
2: Well, back then, at the turn of the century, the last century, Panama was part of Colombia. And they didn't really want to be part of Colombia. So part of the deal was that they'd gain independence. But today, of course, the Panamanians are running the canal. And it's the biggest source of income for their nation, just as the Suez Canal is the biggest source of income for Egypt.
1: Okay, so it's a very important canal, but we've been talking about disease in the program, such as malaria.
2: Right, but malaria did play a pivotal role in this project because the U.S. effort was the second attempt to dig this ditch. The first was made by the French, but they were just unable to finish, principally because of the deadly malaria parasites and a virus called yellow fever.
4: Hi, I'm Mike Conniff. I'm Director of Global Studies at San Jose State University. I'm also a historian of Latin America,
1: a man, a plan, a canal, Panama could have been Esedonial Panama, a man, a plan, no dice.
4: The Panama Canal was built, started to be built in the 1880s by uh, the same man who oversaw the works in uh, Suez, uh, Ferdinand de Lesseps. The French, however, failed to build the canal for a variety of reasons, but one of the uh, most serious was uh, that their men, their workforce was uh, decimated by disease.
2: The French Canal, I mean, this is truly an epic, a tragic story perhaps, tragic in the sense that uh, it almost represented hubris on the part of the French, right? They, they weren't going to build the kind of canal we have today with locks to raise the ships up to a higher level so that they didn't have to dig such a deep trench across Panama. They, they thought they could dig it at sea level all the way across, they didn't, they didn't worry about the disease. I mean,
4: was this just failure of planning or was it just hubris? Well, it was some of both. Uh, De Lesseps was not an engineer. He actually didn't have any profession other than raising money and carrying out these big projects. But he was uh, was beloved by the French people, and the French invested a great deal of their national pride in this project. But De Lesseps really had this uh, fixed idea that he could dig a sea-level canal, and given the technology of the era, it was simply impossible
2: who was actually doing the work? De Lesseps, of course, was not the engineer, but presumably there were French engineers. Who was doing the hard labor of of actually digging this canal?
4: Well, almost all the labor was being done by uh, West Indians, Jamaicans and Barbadians and from other other islands in the Caribbean. Uh, These are the pick and shovel men. The French uh, did send over thousands of engineers and skilled workmen to run the heavy equipment. But the pick and shovel work was uh, done by about uh, 15,000, 20,000 West Indians.
2: And they suffered from uh, these diseases, malaria, yellow fever as well. I mean, they they came from tropical countries. One might assume they'd had some
4: immunity. Uh, Actually, they didn't have any immunity. They died just like the uh, Europeans. But what happened was that you got a lot of people in an environment that was very wet. and, And once the disease starts to spread and there's a dense population, it can become an epidemic. Whereas, obviously, they had yellow fever and malaria in the in the Caribbean islands, but it was not epidemic in size. It was when you get so many people concentrated in a small place with a lot of water, uh, a lot of uh, tropical environment, that the uh, disease wiped out the uh, the population. I believe when they started this
2: project, when Ferdinand de la SEP began this project, of course, uh, they, they knew about tropical diseases. I mean, people had experienced those before. But they didn't know too much about, for example, malaria. They didn't yet know that the mosquito was culpable in spreading this disease, did they?
4: That's exactly right. Uh, No one knew except an obscure uh, physician in Cuba by the name of Carlos Finlay, who was the son of a, an Irish immigrant in Cuba. In the 1860s, he hypothesized that the mosquito was the vector of yellow fever and malaria. However, uh, no one believed him. Uh, in those days, they believed that uh, malaria was carried by by the mists off of uh, off of swamps and out of jungles and so forth. And it was, but they simply had no scientific evidence for it. And Finlay had proven in his uh, laboratory that the mosquito was the vector.
2: I believe I read stories that they would have, for example, the hospital beds would be, uh, the legs of the beds would be standing in little pans of water to keep, I don't know, ants or some other obnoxious bees from getting up to the patients. And these were perfect breeding grounds
4: for the very mosquitoes that were causing the problem. Absolutely right, yeah. The little uh, pans under the uh, the legs of the beds did, in fact, uh, harbor mosquitoes and they also left the windows open, they had no screening to keep out mosquitoes. It, really, it wasn't until after the Spanish-Cuban-American War in, in 1898, the US Army Corps of Engineers um, went into Havana, and in order to make it more healthful for the soldiers who were there and occupying Havana, they started looking at how they could prevent the soldiers from getting yellow fever and malaria. So that is when, in Havana, when they learned of uh, Carlos Finlay's theory, uh, they tested it, they actually exposed some people to mosquitoes, those people got uh, sick, and in fact some of them died in the experiments, but that proved that the mosquito was the vector, and that was a major turn in tropical health all around the world. It allowed a revolution in in treating uh, tropical diseases.
2: Any idea about how many people actually died during the French effort?
4: Gosh, I don't have a number right now. It would have been in the tens of thousands, at least.
2: And these were mostly people from Jamaica and other uh, Caribbean islands.
4: Right, but, you know, I think the uh, mortality rate was higher among the French, the Europeans. They simply weren't able to to defend against the disease. They went out and were affected by the mosquitoes, and they, they had uh, terribly high uh, mortality rates.
2: Okay, so Teddy Roosevelt becomes president of the United States. He's interested in seeing the U.S. become a world power. That means a two-ocean navy... And he needs quick access from one ocean to the other without going around the tip of South America. So he, uh, what do they do, just buy this project from the French?
4: Well, it was a complicated process. Teddy uh, and and many people in Congress wanted to build the canal somewhere else. The experience of the French suggested that Panama was not a good place to build a canal, the disease and so forth. So the legislation that went through Congress at first uh, authorized a canal to be built in Nicaragua. The physical setting was not quite as good in Nicaragua, but uh, they figured they had a, a leg up in not having to deal with the, the disease in Panama. Also, it was a little bit closer. Nicaragua was closer to southern states in the United States, and so that was made the, the route in Nicaragua more attractive. But then Teddy Roosevelt and, and uh, the Republican Party at the last minute cut a deal with the French for $40 million, We bought the rights to dig in Panama from the French, and the French, that was their payoff. They were wanting to get that $40 million and vindicate themselves by having at least someone build the canal. If it wasn't them, at least someone would would pay them off and then finish the project.
2: Finally, Michael, this is really an epic story, the digging of the Panama Canal, because I think that the idea of putting a canal across the isthmus there goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, it was recognized very early that this was a shortcut between the oceans. It was finally done, but nearly frustrated by a very small bacterium. Uh, it, does, does it say something about human hubris, or is it just one of those things that the bacteria always win on this planet?
4: That's a good, good point. Uh, I guess we'd have to say the bacteria lost out in the end, although they're still down there. And uh, other bacteria sort of come in behind. Uh, we're, we're battling dengue now whereas we were battling yellow fever and malaria in the beginning of the 20th century. We need to understand that uh, nature is out there, and uh, nature doesn't always uh, see us as the favored creature on the planet, and uh, so we've, we need to be aware of Mother Nature and, and her uh, tricks.
2: Michael Conniff, thanks so much for
4: talking with me. Thank you, Seth. I enjoyed it.
2: Historian Michael Conniff is Director of Global Studies at San Jose State University and author of Black Labor on a White Canal, Panama, 1904 to 1981.
1: It's been human versus bug since the beginning of time, as we've learned.
2: Yep, and we don't always win, as we've seen with malaria. We don't always get an unconditional surrender. But the tools for combating disease are getting more effective.
1: And that includes being better able to isolate any new outbreak. When an epidemic hits, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, arrive on the scene.
2: But as in the television show Law & Order, where an elite squad of detectives investigate the most heinous crimes... The CDC has its own elite squad of disease detectives to investigate such outbreaks. It's known as the Epidemic Intelligence Service, or EIS. Okay, so let's look at one case they took on in 1968, when a strange illness broke out at the health department, of all places, in Pontiac, Michigan.
1: Now, the first thing that EIS officers must establish when they show up, according to journalist Mark Pendergrass, is time, person, and place. Last one first
5: a health building in Pontiac, Michigan. And the time was... In July.
1: And the people who were affected...
5: Pretty much everybody in the building, so there's your time, person, in place.
2: But how do you figure out what it is?
5: Well, process of elimination.
2: I knew that much.
5: There's a water fountain. But 24 people who got sick said that they never drank from the water fountain.
2: Well, what about a sandwich? Yeah, like a ham with rancid mayonnaise.
5: It wasn't a common food that they had. Then it must have been a bug bite. It was almost certainly not some bug that was biting people. They turned off the air conditioning because they thought maybe it was airborne. But this is summer in Michigan. Hot, hot, hot. Because it was over 90 degrees. Forget it. I want my A.C. By then, many of the people were getting better. They turned the air conditioning on. And lo and behold, two days later, the EIS officers had Pontiac fever.
1: But they still didn't know what microbe was giving humans a fever, so... Here, fuzzy, here, fuzzy.
5: They gave it successfully, whatever it was, to guinea pigs. And so they froze some of the guinea pig tissue and hoping someday that the mystery would be solved. In 1976, the American Legion had its annual convention in Philadelphia. With great hoopla and lots of patriotism and things like that, suddenly they started to sicken and die.
1: The EIS officers arrived on the scene.
5: It's the same thing as with Pontiac Fever. They couldn't figure it out. And then? Finally. A clever lab guy isolated a bacterium. No one recognized it. It was called a fastidious bacterium. They named it Legionella.
1: But Legionella wasn't new to the world. It had probably been around for hundreds of thousands of years.
5: The reason that it had never caused an epidemic before was that we hadn't had air conditioning before, which provided the perfect environment for these bacteria to grow. And these EIS officers have
2: long memories. Remember the guinea pig? Well, someone there did and said...
5: Why don't we check and see whether the samples that we have in our deep freezer here will react to the same antibodies that we have from Legionnaires?
1: And lo and behold...
5: And lo and behold, they did
1: And so the epidemic that hit Philadelphia in 1976 became known as Legionnaire's disease, as did the fever that spread 11 years earlier in Pontiac, Michigan.
2: Just one story of a medical mystery solved by the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Mark Pendergrast tells its history in Inside the Outbreaks. In
5: 1951, during the height of the Cold War, there was widespread fear of bioterrorism. People thought that the communists were going to come and pollute our water and spread anthrax through the air and kill us all with uh, horrible diseases. Alexander Langmuir, who founded the uh, Epidemic Intelligence Service, played on those fears, which he shared. He thought it was a realistic fear, to create a cadre of, uh, he called them, shoe-leather epidemiologists young doctors at the beginning, although now they're, uh, over half of them are women and many of them are not doctors, but they are ready 24 hours a day, suitcases packed, to jump onto whatever epidemic happens. So in general, when you are talking about the CDC has arrived, you're generally talking about EIS officers. They are their frontline disease detectives.
1: Now, a number of the things that the EIS has investigated, some of them, they've actually uncovered some mysteries that perhaps now we take for granted. For example, the reason why there's no mercury and latex paint anymore is is because of them, and also the reason we don't give aspirin to babies. And that last connection was made when young children were turning up with Rye syndrome. Can you tell that story?
5: Mm -hmm. For years, different EIS officers tried to solve this horrible mystery. If you can picture... You have a perfectly normal seven-year-old daughter. She gets flu, basically a bad cold. You treat it. She begins to get better. Everything is, you know, well, maybe she can go back to school. Suddenly she begins to vomit relentlessly, and then she becomes confused and combative. Then she becomes drowsy. Then she falls into a coma. Of course, you've taken her to the hospital by now, but despite everything they do, she dies. And it was called Rye syndrome because this seemed to happen right during a flu epidemic or chickenpox epidemic. And it happened to otherwise perfectly healthy children, and nobody knew what caused it. So in 1978, there was an EIS officer named Karen Starko who was based in Arizona. Well, she learned of seven children who had Rye syndrome, all in Phoenix. She visited them. Two of them died within a few days. She interviewed their parents, and she tried to figure, again, this was a fishing expedition. What could it be that they had in common? So she asked about their pets. She asked what medications they had taken. She asked what they ate. She asked, you know, what their home heating system was. I mean, she was just on a fishing expedition she found it difficult to find out what they had all taken for medicine because a lot of them were things like Pepto-Bismol or cough syrup. So she had to go to the drugstore and look and see what the ingredients were. And it turns out that all seven of them had taken aspirin, whereas she also had controls. In other words, she chose 16 children who went to school with them who also got flu, but who didn't get Rye syndrome. So what was the difference? Well, those children, only half of them took aspirin and they didn't take as much. So she became suspicious that it was aspirin. She looked up aspirin toxicology and it had very similar impact, which was it it made your liver have fatty deposits and your brain swelled. So subsequent studies showed that she was right. One of the terrible things about this to me is that the aspirin industry fought against them, lobbied hard to keep the FDA from insisting that they put a warning label on aspirin-containing medications for children. They delayed it for five years, during which time 300 more children died of Rye syndrome and many others were permanently Mm. brain damaged.
1: But that is why, in the end, their work is why we have that label that says do not give aspirin to very young children.
5: That's right. I mean, it's really unbelievable that these are sort of unsung heroes of public health. Nobody's ever heard of EIS officers, but they may very well, I said, have saved your life. You just wouldn't know it.
1: You know, on that subject of um, the EIS running up against these special interests in the businesses, that also happened during the outbreak if that's the right word, of toxic shock syndrome. So you Mm -hmm. have the Staphylococcus bacteria that was linked to toxic shock syndrome in the 1980s, and it was the EIS that discovered the link between the bacteria that causes toxic shock and tampons that were produced by Procter & Gamble. Now, how did the company react to that news of that connection?
5: The CEO of the company fell down on his knees and said, what if you're wrong? Just think of what it would do to our company. And the EIS officer said, I want you to consider what if we're right? Would you want your daughter to be wearing this and to die? And so they were forced to withdraw, rely from the market.
1: But now, didn't the CEO of the company, Procter & Gamble, have a point in that you have to prove that this agent is causing this disease? Because you also write that epidemiology is the science of probability and not proof. And in this case of the toxic shock syndrome, 70% plus or so, of the women who had gotten sick, had used this Rely tampon. But that means that 20% or more had not.
5: That's right. It's a science of probability. So you have to look at the statistics and see whether it's statistically probable that it was that particular agent that was causing it. And it's a judgment call. It's not a totally hard science. In this case, they clearly made the right call, and they saved a lot of lives.
1: Some of the stories that you tell give you an idea of just how these agents lurk everywhere. In the case of the uh, the school children who were sweeping up debris outside their school building, this seems like a, a pretty innocent thing to do, but unbeknownst to them, they were stirring up these bird droppings mm-hmm. that had been there for a long time that held something called histoplasmosis.
5: Histoplasmosis is a disease, it grows primarily in very old bird droppings, and this was ironically, this was the very first Earth Day in April of 1970, and the school children had, you know, cleaned up the the schoolyard, there was no evidence that there had ever been birds there. And it was only when an EIS officer asked specifically about it because the symptoms were similar to histoplasmosis, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we used to have a little orchard here. And we had so many starlings that it looked like Christmas in July because of the droppings. So they cut all the trees down. They're long gone, but the droppings were not long gone. They were in the ground along with the uh, histoplasmosis spores. And these are spores that can survive for years. They're very hardy. Just like anthrax.
1: Well, it, it gives me pause even if I go down into my basement and want to clean up, which I did not that long ago. I mean, it was there was some old there were old old boxes, and you know the sort of thing that end up in basements, and you sort of wonder what you're stirring up.
5: I would wear a respirator the next time you do <laughs> that. <laughs> Hold on right there. There are more bugs with
2: more disease detective work from Mark Pendergrass in a moment. Also, are we all descended from bugs from space? It's Bug Off on Big Picture Science.
1: Ah, got him. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China.
3: I mean, China
2: is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana.
1: We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
2: Welcome back to Big Picture Science. And we continue our conversation with Mark Pendergrast about the EIS, or Epidemic Intelligence Service. They've stopped pathogens in their slimy tracks and saved lives. But there's more to their history.
1: Now, Mark, the EIS has also been the subject of controversy, especially in its early years. Um, In the very early history, in the 1950s, they did medical experiments on prisoners without their consent to test hepatitis. How did they do that?
5: They did it with their consent, but they didn't give them informed consent. In other words, they didn't sufficiently explain to them what they were doing. And, you know, you really can't get informed consent from a prisoner because they're not in exactly a position to say no to you very well. But yeah, what uh, I interviewed an EIS officer who had was testing hepatitis vaccines. And at that time, they didn't even call it hepatitis A and B. Hepatitis B they called serum hepatitis, but they knew it was bloodborne. So they were intentionally giving it to prisoners and to uh, people in mental institutions in order to see whether the vaccine worked, which in fact it didn't. So they were giving uh, hepatitis A and B to people. Well, hepatitis A, you know, you get over it. Hepatitis B, it turns out, can have long-term consequences. It can cause cirrhosis of the liver and it can kill you in years to come. So that was an absolutely horrible thing to do. I will say that it was what was done in uh, a lot of medical experiments at the time. The EIS was not unusual in this regard. And they certainly would never do anything like that now.
1: Now, one of the great success stories um, for the EIS was eradicating smallpox. This was a deadly disease. It was global disease. And it's just about been wiped out. I mean, there are vials of it somewhere in, in some freezers. What made this global campaign successful?
5: Well, it wasn't just the EIS; it was a huge campaign worldwide, and many people took part in it. It was directed by a guy named D. A. Henderson, who had been an EIS officer, and who then went to Geneva to direct this global enterprise. It's the first and thus far only disease that has been completely eradicated. You're right; there are a few samples they're keeping in freezers, which I wish they'd get rid of those too. But The way that EIS officers worked was to go first to West Africa. And the first approach was to try mass vaccination, to try to give the vaccine just to everybody. And they were having a very difficult time doing that. it happened that they ran out of vaccine in a particular part of Nigeria. And Bill Fagey, who at the time had graduated from the EIS but who had been an officer, he decided that he would use the limited supply of vaccine he had to vaccinate around the area where it was likely that it would next go and he stopped smallpox cold and as a matter of fact it was eliminated from that entire area and they realized that they could do what he came to call surveillance containment first you do surveillance to see where is the disease showing up and then you can vaccinate everybody within let's say a two-mile radius and you can stop it and that discovery allowed it to succeed in India and in Bangladesh and eventually the last case uh, appeared in uh, Somalia in 1977 but there were some ethical questions about the way they did that too by the way here you were battling this disease that was disfiguring and killing so many children and adults throughout the world and, and they had this incredible zeal to do it but you'd go to a house and they would say, no, I don't want to be vaccinated. No, you can't vaccinate my children. There was a, a goddess named Chitalamata, the smallpox goddess. And if you worshipped her, it was supposed to cure you. And she didn't want you to be vaccinated, things like that. Well, some of them got so frustrated that they forcibly vaccinated people. And... I can understand why, but I don't think they should have.
1: Well, that question about vaccination is reared its head again today, whether or not you have an obligation to the community to vaccinate or whether it's a private decision.
5: It's a difficult thing because if you know it works, and I'm concerned that more and more people in this country are saying, oh, vaccines are bad for you, and so I'm not going to let them vaccinate my children. Well, they're probably relatively safe right now from something like diphtheria because there isn't much around because of the sort of herd effect of uh, having lots and lots of people vaccinated. But over time, you're going to have a larger susceptible group of children And you will have terrible epidemics again. So I'm a big believer in uh, safe, effective vaccination.
1: Mark Pendergrass, thank you very much for talking with us.
2: Thank you. It's an inside operation with Mark Pendergrass. He's the author of Inside the Outbreaks, the elite medical detectives of the Epidemic Intelligence Service.
1: Bugs do cause illness, but here's a thought. Could life on Earth all be the result of an ancient invasion of bugs from space?
2: Now, the usual kind of alien invasion is like, well, remember the 1953 war, the world's the Hollywood film in which the Martians come down in a meteor.
3: <laughs>
2: and then the meteor eventually unscrews and the aliens can get out. And aliens leaking out. Come on. The humans approach and they see this thing, they want to be friends. They think these Martians are going to
4: be friendly. We're friends. Hey there! Open up! How are they going to understand us? They'll understand us,
2: all right. Come on out! We're friends! Sure, the humans wave a white flag, but the Martians, they just wipe them out with their death ray.
1: (laughs) That's not the kind of invasion we're talking about, Seth. The aliens we're talking about, yeah, they arrived on a chunk of rock, but without machinery or weapons, because it's hard to hold a death ray when you're a microbe.
2: Indeed. Let's not talk about War of the Worlds, Consider it spore of the worlds, because there's a theory that life on Earth actually came from space. It's called panspermia, and it goes like this. Spores, that is bacteria in a suspended state of animation, were buried in a rock somewhere that was knocked off another planet far, far away, managed to land on our planet, releasing our progenitors, tiny bacteria that evolved into us and everything else that lives on Earth.
1: So we could have all come from planets around the star Sirius or Vega or Betelgeuse.
2: Do we owe these hypothesized lowly life forms our existence? This man makes space his business.
0: I'm Robert Zubrin. I'm president of the Mars Society. Bob, the original
2: Earthlings were thought to be microscopic bits of life that cooked up in maybe the hot waters of some deep oceanic sea vent. But you subscribe to another idea, that the original Earthlings weren't from Earth at all.
0: Well, no one can be sure about this, but I think it's highly probable. And the reason is that we find no free-living organisms on Earth simpler than bacteria. And bacteria are not simple. So this suggests that they are immigrants, that the earlier evolution of them occurred somewhere else.
2: So the basis of this idea is that Earth was seeded, is that correct?
0: Sure. Now, we know this is possible in principle. We have, for instance, natural transfer of material from Earth to Mars. We We found meteors on Earth that came from Mars without a doubt. And one of them, which was the subject of great controversy, the Allen Hills meteor, because the people who studied it claimed they found evidence of life on Mars in it. As a result of that controversy, the rock was subject to intense scrutiny. And one of the findings of one of those many investigations is that during its entire career of ejection from Mars, flight through space, re-entry and landing on Earth, large portions of that rock were never raised above 40 centigrade. So if there had been bacteria in it when it left Mars, they would have survived. And I'm not saying that life came to Earth by that rock. In fact, it certainly didn't, because that rock came much more recently than the origin of life. But billions of such rocks have been ejected from Mars over the past 4 billion years. And Mars had liquid water on it before Earth did. So if life can evolve in hydrothermal systems it had a chance to do so on Mars before it had a chance to do it on Earth. So why shouldn't life on Earth have come from Mars or from somewhere even further away that we don't know about?
2: Well, this idea, I believe, is known as panspermia. That's the, the name that's frequently given to it. Do you have a preference here? Because I don't know that the idea of life having originated on Mars first and then infected the Earth, uh, while there's no evidence that I know of that says that's true, it certainly is plausible. But uh, there's this other idea that life may not have originated on Mars either. It may have originated, well, with the stars around, a, you know, on a planet very, very distant. Is is that a viable hypothesis in your opinion?
0: Yes, I think it is. The stars are constantly moving around with respect to each other. And in fact, every few million years, just due to random motion, there are close approaches from one star to another, from our star to another. Other stars pass through our own Oort cloud. Every 20 or 30 million years, and we pass through theirs. So, for instance, well, it certainly it's been material ejected from Earth for the past 3.5 billion years that is filled with life. So, for the past 3.5 billion years, the Earth has been emitting life, and perhaps many of these rocks and such that are emitted that have bacteria in them get lodged and frozen in Oort cloud objects. Well, another star passes through our Oort cloud and it precipitates some of those objects down on its own planets. At the same time, we also precipitate some of their Oort cloud objects down into our solar system, and we have impacts on Earth and elsewhere. So this kind of random motion provides a a means of transit, of biological materials between the stars.
2: So it's kind of analogous to uh, the contagion that communicates colds from one person to another. As long as everybody stayed very isolated from everybody else, I guess you wouldn't get a cold quite so easily. But if you get close and, and you sneeze on one another, then you can infect them uh, somewhat more easily. How, how long would it take a a rock with some life in it to get from some other planet to ours. I mean, from Mars to the Earth, obviously, a rock could really do that journey in just, you know, a a few years, at least in principle. But coming from another star system, how long a journey is that?
0: Well, you see, right now, you know, if we take typical interplanetary velocity, such as the Voyager spacecraft, it would take tens of thousands of years to make such a trip which, by the way, is not beyond the survival time of latent uh, bacteria. We, we've recovered bacteria that has been preserved in amber at 200 million years old and revived it. So lasting 50,000 or 100,000 years during an interstellar transit is certainly not beyond their capability. But during these close approaches, the transit time could be more like 1,000 years.
2: Finally, Bob. This idea, panspermia, this idea of infection from space, has been around a long time. I think it's uh, on the order of a century. Mm -hmm. How would you prove that it's true? What is the experiment that could establish whether this is just an interesting idea or it actually represents reality?
0: Well, I think if we went to Mars and found organisms on Mars with a similar biochemistry to Earth life, but no prior ancestors, no pre-bacterial organisms, this would suggest to me that both Earth and Mars were seeded from a common source. If we went to Mars and found organisms with a similar biochemistry to Earth organisms, but also including more primitive organisms, that would then be a very strong indication that life on Earth originated within our own solar system, but on Mars. If, on the other hand, we went to Mars and found life but with completely different biochemistry than the Earth, then that would suggest that life can originate easily in separate locations from separate origins and have a different point of departure, which would then strongly suggest that life actually did originate on Earth, not uniquely, but nevertheless in its own way.
2: Well, Bob Zubrin, thank you so very much for talking to us about this highly interesting subject.
0: Well, thanks for the invitation.
1: That's it for our show. We'd like to thank the billions of bacteria that helped make up Gary Niederhoff, the millions of viruses that call Barbara Vance home, and the strange fungus growing on Jay Weiler. Jay, you really should see someone about that.
2: Also the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where understanding life on other planets means taking a close look at the tiny life forms on this one.
1: So, Seth, can you also do a death ray? Yeah, sure. At least
2: the Martian kind of death ray. <coughs> <coughs> <coughs>
1: Can you do the sound of uh, a spacecraft taking off?
2: Mm. Well, the, the best one was at the, the end of the day, the Earth Stood Still, the original version. We have all this Bernie Herman music, and, and Michael Rennie is making a speech, and suddenly
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it disappears up into the sky.
1: That's pretty good.